Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Think about this. Approximately 40% of your workday is spent convincing other people to do or not do something. Now, whether that's persuading a client to accept your deal, getting Jan to order the good chocolate bickies in the break room, or talking your colleague out of going for the job promotion that you are secretly going for. But far from the Machiavellian ambitions, Michael McQueen's new book, Mind Stuck, Mastering the Art of Changing Minds, argues that in our ideology-driven and polarised age, certainty has taken the place of curiosity and open-mindedness has given way to obstinance. Michael, welcome to you. Thanks so much. Aristotle more or less used these sort of three or four modes of persuasion, ethos, Mm. pathos and logos, roughly character, emotion and logic. But that is the how, not the why. Our want to change someone else's mind, does it always have to be self-serving? Well, ideally it it isn't going to be self-serving. I mean, it's got to be something that that is a win-win. I think that's the important theme that you see in so much persuasion that works in the long term is it's got to be something that everyone benefits from. And that really goes to you know, the notion of what Aristotle spoke about with ethos, you know, ethos, you've got to be trustworthy, incredible, and people sniff very quickly if you're in it only for you and what your ends or your aims are. And so I think, you know, when it comes to trying to change people's minds, checking your own attitude first is like an, is an important step. But the reality isn't to, to your, you know, what you've just said in that intro, we all have to do it. Like we have to try and shift people, nudge people, influence people, to make decisions that will work well for them and for the team and for society at large. And like looking at how we do that is, is really the key focus of the book because it's tricky. It's harder than ever. I think we're all very aware of just how often trigger-happy and tribal people are in the way they think. So influencing can be really difficult in that context. Yeah, I was also surprised to learn, I never knew this, that there was this fourth mode of persuasion, kairos, which is basically uh, seizing the opportunity Mm. or the right time or season. So so using those um, Aristotle modes of persuasion, is it your view that the best reason to change someone's mind, whatever that reason is, needs to be a permanent state of mind? Because otherwise you've used parlour tricks so to speak, to get your way in the short term. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, looking also at what has caused that person to arrive at their view in the first place is a big part of that. Because otherwise, if all you've done is give them logic and evidence or appeal to, you know, to use Aristotle's language, logos or that sort of the rational faculties or just the heart. And we've all seen that. I mean, you know, people that you can move a, another individual or move an audience to feel something, but that doesn't stick. It, it never lasts very well in the long term. And so, you know, what are the things that actually shift people's perspectives and really changing people's minds is getting to the getting them to a point where they say either to themselves or out loud, like, I'd never thought of it that way. You know, I'd never seen it from that perspective. So it really is about shifting people's frame of reference or point of view and then looking at what actually works in doing that. I think the tricky thing is we've been taught for really the last 400 years that the best way to do that is to you know pile on evidence and logic and you know, make a compelling case. And yet what we've learned in the last few years is that, is that the opposite is actually true. And what, what often happens when you've got someone with a very stubborn, fixed view of the way things are or the way they are, the more evidence you pile on, 
the more stubborn they get, the more they dig their heels in. And so looking at how, how do you actually get around that then and really speak to the sort of things that often cause people to be stuck or stubborn in their view so that they feel that they're making a choice for their own reasons rather than because they feel coerced into doing so. You sort of rail against certainty or or stubbornness in your book, but I'd argue that you need to, uh, if you're the one trying to do the influencing, you need to show some of those qualities to be able to be convincing no matter which mode that you're trying to uh, use to access uh, that, that other mind, if you like. So how do you balance the need for certainty in persuasion? Because you need to start with at least a certain position to be able to uh, articulate that position. <laughs> and I think a lot of it is about, I guess, your posture and the, and the tone or the approach that you have. So, for instance, if you're having a conversation with someone and you want to bring something to their attention that they maybe haven't noticed, haven't thought about, haven't considered before, you might feel pretty sure that your perspective is bang on. Like you've, you've got a view that they really need to hear. But if you approach it with that sort of tone, like I've got something to share with you and like this is, this is important, you know, you need to take this on board, of course, the first response from the other person is defensive, like you, you don't understand or, you know, maybe you haven't got the full picture or whatever it is. So even just approaching with a, like a tone of humility, like, you know, what, I, I might have misread the situation, but my take on this is, or take this for what it's worth, just even leading with that sense of humility and openness and not being, like just not being forceful. I think that's the reality. So many of us go into conversations with a, a posture or a tone that gives the other person no option but to have to defend themselves and to fight back. And I it's, think that's that's half the battle. It's so interesting we're having this conversation because last night I had my typical argument with my children about, uh, you know, now is the time to have dinner. Uh, you can't <laughs> – dinner doesn't last for three hours. Yep. Dinner lasts for 20 minutes and then after that the kitchen's closed. Yep. And I went to the tried and tested sales technique of the takeaway close. I said, look, I don't care. You eat or not eat – it's totally up to you. And it worked. It was the first yeah. time that it actually worked. My, Rather than asserting a position that I thought they should take, yep. I removed myself and let yeah. them make the decision. The takeaway close is actually quite powerful is what I'm saying. Yeah. And actually, what's funny, talking about children and last night, so my conversation was, was last night, our little boy just turned eight. And so he's had like three nights in a row of going to bed at nine o'clock, which for an eight-year-old, is not advisable. Like we're in like seven, seven thirty type bedtime. And so last night, I thought, you know, if, if I tell him at the dinner table, dude, you're looking really tired. You need to have an early night tonight. Well, I mean, what does every kid say the moment you say you're looking <laughs> tired? No, I'm not. Even if their eyes are falling out of their head. And so I think, and what works with our kids works generally. Like it's so it often you know speaks to the raw human nature that actually underpins so many of the dynamics you see in the workplace, working with adults as well. And so even just approaching that with you know a far more you know, gentle, like, hey, dude, you might be pretty tired. It's been a massive few days. Let's have an early night. But if I told him he was tired, he was he will resist that at every point. And I think that's what we so often see play out in organizations where even if you've got a position of power or authority, like you might be the boss, you can call the shots and t- tell people what to do. But the reality is unless they feel bought into the process and like they've got agency or control or autonomy in the process – they may do as you ask or what you say in the moment, but it's unlikely their mind has changed at all. And the moment you turn your back, they'll go back to doing what they were doing in the past. And it's like that I mean, that old quote from Dale Carnegie in How to Win Friends and Influence People. This idea of person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. And so <laughs> a lot of the book focuses on how do you actually get people to a point where they, they willingly change their mind because it's a choice and they feel they can change their mind without 
losing face or losing ego because often that's what gets in the way of us being open-minded, not just the people we're trying to influence, but also ourselves as well. We can always get just stuck in that sense of, of ego and I've got to protect it, even if deep down I know that what you're saying is right. If I have to admit that I'm an idiot to acknowledge I might have been wrong, then I will resist it at every point. This has particular pertinence when it comes to deal-making in political circles, and we hear this mm. a lot these, these days about the consultation phase or we'll have, um, you know, this seminar or, you know, open table, round table discussion. The real art in changing people's minds really starts with the credibility of that co- uh, consultation, as you say, because people will sniff you out if you already got a preconceived outcome. Again, the, yeah. that's there's that... Machiavellianness or this duality or two-sidedness, which means that you have to genuinely listen. Otherwise, yep. people won't go with you on the journey, as they say. Yeah, there's got to be the sense that you're you're willing to listen and willing to hear them. I mean, the, the, the truism is that people who are listened to are more likely to listen. And so if there's that sense in which like they, they feel like they can, even if they can score a few points, if you want to use that sort of language, like it's, it, it's not just been all one way, that you've made some, you know, you, they've made some points that have made you stop and think, then they're more open to what it is that you might say. But I think the other thing is looking at some of those dynamics around ego that can so often play into that stubborn resistance. And one of the themes I look at is this idea of psychological sunk cost. And we all know like what an economic sunk cost is, which is, you know, you, you'll stick by a course of action or a decision you've made, even if a better option comes along. And even if you know that what, what you're doing is not going to work out well in the long term, but you've spent so much money, you've spent so much time on it, you'll, you'll dig your heels in, even though you know it's going to disadvantage you. And we do the same thing psychologically. Like we'll stick by beliefs and ideas and ideologies that we actually know aren't going to work out well and that better options come along, better informations come to light. But there's that sense that I've spent so much money or time or my ego, my reputation in this worldview, that that's often the thing that even if people deep down think, you know, you've got a point, if they feel like they can't acknowledge that without losing that sense of face or ego, they'll dig in their heels even though they know that they're probably disadvantaging themselves in doing so. I recently heard a strategy to deal with road rage and it basically goes, no matter who caused the incident in the first place, Mm. to disarm the other person, you basically use childish humour. You say, you're a big meanie, you're not coming to my birthday party, you smell, (laughs) to get them to laugh because the, the element of satire is very, very kind of key here. You use yep. the example of the power of the court jester. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just am curious about this because Aristotle didn't refer to humour. I suppose emotion would mm. be the closest mode of persuasion. But it is so important for changing minds. Tell me why. Well, I think what humour does is it creates that sense of affinity. If we're laughing together, we're on the same page. It's, it creates a sense of commonplace. Um, it also disarms some of those very analytical faculties. And I think that's why, you know, particularly if you look at the the, the court jester of old had a really important role because they could speak truth to power. They could say the things that others couldn't say because of the way that it was delivered. And this is where I think, you know, it's so important that we create spaces in the public square and in public discourse to be able to hold the mirror up to ourselves and to, to society and have a laugh at ourselves because that's often where, really deep truths get brought into light and we realise things about ourselves that maybe are too uncomfortable to talk about in like just open forum discussion, but humour allows it to to be, I guess, approached in a more um, a more relaxed way, a more open way. We don't feel so defensive. So I think humour 
is incredibly disarming, but there's also a cleverness to humour. Like it, it, there's an efficiency. You can deliver a line. It's almost like poetry. You can deliver a line in five or six words that you might have to unpack that idea in a, in a, in a big way if you were to describe it you know, in conversation casually. But in humour, you can make a point that lands and go, oh, yeah, wow, I'd never thought of it that way. I'd never seen that in, in myself or in society. And so I think comedians often have a really key role speaking into what's happening in society. I'm going to give you a very, very real-world applied scenario here mm. to try and use what we've learnt from your book and this conversation in the real world. Obviously, Christmas is coming up, and Christmas yep. means spending time with distant family members, some of whom might be that anti-vaxxer uncle, that anti-immigration yeah. uncle. Uh, I don't know why I'm picking on my uncle, but I think you get the idea <laughs> of the extremity that yep. uh, we all have sometimes or the arbitrariness in, in our, our, our family trees. What advice can you give in terms of the way and the reasoning to talk to someone like that? Yeah, I think that it is tricky because there are often times where we're, we're, we're quick to write people off because of the views they have or the opinions they have. And I think the first thing I'd encourage, and it's for all of us really, is to realise that you are not your opinions and neither is someone else. Like apart from a view they hold that might seem crazy to you they are still like a valuable human being and so how do you how do you maintain regard for someone even if you might lose a bit of respect for them because of what they think because the moment there's that sense that you've written them off as a fool because of some of the beliefs they might hold there's there's going to be no ability for you to engage constructively so starting off with what with a mutual respect is critical but also then look for like common ground so for instance someone who's got a a really deeply held conspiracy belief about something you know what what actually underpins that often there's a sense that there's someone who who challenges authority and asks questions and doesn't take things at face value. And you're like, well, you know, I have this I have the same value. Like I, I I admire that in people. You don't just take everything that is fed to you, you ask questions. That's great. But is it possible that? And then you start asking questions from that place of common ground, like we we share this, but is it possible that there's another perspective you haven't considered? Or like even to get them to tease that out, like how would that work? And a conspiracy belief is interesting because the more you get people to explain the nature of their beliefs and the application of their beliefs, like if that were to be true, what else would need to be true? I mean, for instance, the number of conspiracy beliefs, you like, for that to be a thing, can you imagine how many tens of thousands of people in the government apparatus would need to be really good at keeping a secret? That's Is that likely? Like, is that a possibility, truly? And even just asking people questions again to think, to like almost to the to the end of the the article uh, the argument, if you take it to its logical conclusion, is that reasonable? And you're unlikely to win the argument or win the point in that moment, but that's actually not the goal. The goal isn't to win, to have them throw up their hands in surrender and go, you know what, I was a fool, you are right. But like even just to sow the seed of them thinking about something from a different perspective and asking different questions, that's probably the most you can expect from a family gathering, okay, around a a dinner table, but starting with respect at least means that's not going to be fractious and tense because, of course, that's never going to end well for any of us. <laughs> well, Aristotle would be proud. You've certainly changed my mind. White is black, black is white. You've pulled some <laughs> tricks on me this afternoon, but uh, they have been very, very welcome tricks. Michael McQueen has been my guest. His new book, Mind Stuck, Mastering the Art of Changing Minds, is out now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Cheers. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park.